Greetings, Internet community. I'm Mike Lewis. I'm here with David Lafferty and Brett Stalkeld, both from Our Glorious Neighbors to the North in Canada. Or I guess I'm their neighbor to the south. I'm outnumbered. Hey, guys, how's it going? It's good to be here. Good. So today we are talking, uh, we're doing an episode of uh, The Critical Catholic, where we talk about conspiracy theories and how to think critically, and how to be a faithful person who uses reason. Today's episode is going to throw a little bit of a wrinkle into some of the things we've talked about in, in earlier editions. What happens when conspiracy theorists land on something that's partially right? Why don't we first just check in with you guys? Brett, what's new with you? Welcome back. First time we're both on the air at the same time. I'm a little rusty, right. as everyone can tell. <laughs> Yeah, well, lots lots going on, busy time, but uh, but yeah, when the when the lab leaks thing kind of blew up, like shortly after we recorded our last episode that I was on with David two weeks ago, I just thought like there's there's some thinking through to be done here uh, because um, it, it it looks like I mean the, the surface read is like oh the conspiracy theorists were right all along, and. Uh, and that can lead to a lot of confusion. So I just I, I I just wrote you guys and said like, hey, I think I think there's a conversation worth having around this lab leaks thing, and then you know a few other connected points that that we've chatted about you know by email over the last week or so. Yeah, absolutely. And David, welcome once again. Um, I don't know if you, you have any any uh, opening thoughts, and then you maybe you can lead us with our with your prayer. Um. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, when when Brett suggested this topic, I thought, yeah, this is actually a, a great thing to look at um, because you know we we got to be careful um, not to fall into the sort of opposite trap um, of like where you know you know with conspiracy theory, people reject everything that the sort of mainstream narrative uh, or the mainstream media presents. Um, we have to avoid the trap of of just rejecting everything um, that maybe um, is floating around out there, the theories that are floating around. Cause you know, we, we have to keep a little bit of an open mind um, although we still have to maintain our uh, critical faculties and uh, try to sort fact from fiction. So um, I think this is actually a, a fantastic topic cause we're seeing some of this um, happen right now. People are trying to sort fact from fiction and try to figure out what do we do now when it seems that maybe some of these conspiracy theorists about COVID-19 were a little right when it comes to one particular thing. So um, we'll, we'll continue with that in, in a minute. But um, first, I'm, I'll just offer a, uh, a quick prayer to get us started and to, to guide our, our conversation. Um, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, please guide us in our discussion. Help us to dispel confusion, discern fact from fiction, and cleave to the truth. Allow us to contribute to the creation of a healthy Catholic media culture. Amen. Amen. I love the verb cleave. I know. Uh, I was I just thinking about I that. I love cleaving. Yeah. 
Where did you get the prayer? Did you write it? Did you? Did you uh, that one I just I just wrote. I, but oh, I, you wow. know that, this idea of cleaving to the truth, uh, it's it's fascinating to me because you know as Catholics we're supposed to you know cleave to the truth of the Catholic faith, right? Um, but I you know I thought also. Um, as Catholics, I think we need to cleave as, as close as possible to the objective truth, you know, the empirical, actual truth out there. Um, so we need to do both. You know, we can't uh, blind ourselves when it, in, when it comes to um, the objective truth and critical thinking and that sort of thing. So that's where that, yeah, that's where that comes from. Well, and, and that's, I think, one of the, the main, um, you know, one of the main threads in Catholic thought is that faith and reason uh shouldn't come into conflict with one another. And one of the things that we notice quite frequently in uh, fundamentalist thought is that the theological concept, uh, th is that the scientific finding is, is, consider is sometimes seen as in conflict with the theological concept. And then the two of them have to, have to fight it out. And of course, if you're a religious person, if you're, especially if you have a little strand of religious fundamentalism, in you, then you might resort to things like confirmation bias, or uh, you know, any you know, any excuse is a good excuse to defend your to defend your your position. Um, and so, I think this may be a, a when we talk about faith and reason. Um, Brett, you mentioned that some people have uh, said to you, like, you shouldn't be voicing your opinion on vaccines or on COVID because you are a theologian. Right. Like stick to the religion. What's your response to that? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like some people, it's a fairly common thing for me to engage in on social media, questions around vaccine and the virus and, and whatever else. It's not the only thing I engage on by any stretch. Um, one of the things that happens on social media is if you engage with people on certain subjects, the algorithm will show you whenever they post on those subjects. So then you get you get a, a cloudy picture actually of of what emphasis they are placing on something. Because if you don't want them to put emphasis on something and you get upset about that and interact with the post, you'll get shown more of those kinds of things. So um, so some people have accused me of being obsessed, you know, so I went back and scrolled to see like, okay, how, how often, you know, and it's like, well, it's way less than half. It's probably less than a third of my posts relate to like the most pressing thing happening in the world. You know, I mean, not I every single day, there's other things that happen, of course, but like over the last stretch of time. Um, but I mean, why, well, like, why is a Catholic theologian really interested in this question? Uh, and I mean, there's personal reasons, of course. I, I find certain kinds of things interesting because of my personality or my, you know, um, circumstances and the people around me. But as a Catholic, like, there's two huge things. The first is um, being pro-life. I mean, this, this is a life issue like there there are millions of people have died and how we handle this um shapes whether more or fewer people die in the future so first and foremost it's a pro-life concern uh i think catholics need to be really serious about those implications um and and then the second thing is as a theologian i'm like deeply concerned about the credibility of the church to preach the gospel in our contemporary society. And when, when lots of Catholics are, are presenting misinformation in their social media feeds, when various, you know, Catholic uh, organizations, you know, what do you want to call them? News organizations or whatever have made this a, a primary or flagship Catholic universities in 
some cases in, in in the case of my country but when 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 there's major catholic voices uh, being part of spreading misinformation that is literally at this point literally killing people uh and we can talk a little more about what i mean by that um i think there's a responsibility for catholics who who have a public voice who have the capacity to engage in these kinds of questions to say something about it because it's it's about the credibility of the church uh, you know, and I mean, if if we as an archdiocese, for instance, were to cave to some of the loudest voices who are making certain demands on us, we would have contributed to the deaths of um, who knows how many vulnerable people in our community. I mean, if, if you've been to a Catholic church in Canada lately, it's the, the, the number of people over 70 is a significant percentage, uh, right? Um, when when we're looking at this from a diocesan protocol point of view, um, we say like those are our people, and whatever we do in in how we celebrate mass or whatever in this in circumstance, we have to be protecting those people, right? Um, and, and like the the scandal if we were careless with the lives of the vulnerable in our own community, never mind th that creating vectors into the broader community, you know? So, so those two big things, the credibility of the church and, and the pro-life witness, like this is a life and death uh, question. And, and I'll, I'll explain the comment I made earlier about um, people dying from misinformation. In my part of the world right now, we announced, it's so Saskatchewan, we announced, you know, between zero and three deaths per day, typically from COVID right now. And you look at the stats and they're all people who are old enough to have one vaccine and lots of them two. And the government came out uh, a couple weeks ago and said explicitly, everyone in the ICU right now is someone who could have had a vaccine and declined one. I mean, I mean it, it's, it's that straightforward. If, if you're dying of COVID in Saskatchewan right now, with very rare exceptions for people who are not medically indicated to get a vaccine, and we all need to get vaccines to protect those people, right? So. Yeah. It, Taking out that tiny subgroup that, that was not medically indicated for a vaccine, if you're dying from COVID in Saskatchewan today, you're dying of misinformation. Well, and, and yeah. you know, I wrote uh, an article maybe in de early December of last year because um, Archbishop Strickland, or Bishop Strickland um, of Tyler, Texas, has been pretty outspoken in terms of, you know, refusal to get the vaccine. He's openly dissented, you know, he signed the Athanasius Schneider uh, public letter and has never recanted it. You know, since then, both the USCCB and the CDF have, you know, weighed in and contradicted, you know, what he said or, you know, what that document says, and he's never backtracked from it. And so I actually titled the piece and I, I mean, for all of the, you talk about obsessions and things like that. And people say we have obsessions with things. It's like the number of bishops that we have gone after by like gone after criticized by name at where Peter is, is, is probably under 10, but you know, I, I made the headline of that particular article. Um, and I know you work for the church, so you don't have to win, but I, I, I made the headline a dangerous bishop because he is the the advice that he's giving is literally risking people's lives and um and if people follow what he says then that's yeah obviously it's a blow to credibility and people could wind up dead because of it 
So David, do you have any, any thoughts on? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very true what you're saying, Brett. I mean, you look at people like, uh, let's say like Archbishop Vigano, um, you know, he's someone who's created a whole sort of Catholic anti-vaccine cult almost, um, like through social media, um, through the out news outlets, Catholic news outlets that, that publish his stuff. You know, every person who's in an, in an ICU right now who could have been vaccinated but who didn't, you know, this is partly on them. This is partly on people like Archbishop Vigano. This, this, they're going to have to account for this. Um, and it's a terrifying thought, but and it's, it's hard to believe that they just don't care or that they, I mean, it's, it's so frustrating. And like you said, it's, it's a counter witness. Absolutely. It just, it, it makes, it makes the church, the, the rest of, you know, Catholics and some, some Catholics have been doing an exemplary job, you know, when it comes to this um, and, and some bishops, um, even, you know, like Archbishop Vigano is a sort of extreme version, right? Like he just kind of comes out and he says, you know, the vaccines are part of this, you know, Freemasonic plan for global control and all this stuff. Other ones will kind of twist the official theology. So, you know, you have the USCCB, I think, saying that, you know, it's it's morally licit to take the vaccine. But if some people decide they're going to, you know, make a heroic witness or whatever, right, that, that you know, that, that that's acceptable as well. Now, for a lot of these Catholics who are already um, sort of anti-vaccine, they have a sort of life site news mentality, of course, they're going to go for the heroic witness option, right? Because um, not only does it give them an out here, they don't need to take the vaccine, but it makes them feel like they're braver, right. they're they're better Catholics. They're the, yeah, they're the ones who are, you know, standing up. And, and you, I mean, I see this rhetoric all the time, this this idea that, you know, oh, these ordinary Catholics are, are you know, kind of Catholic cowardly. We're all just sort of, you know, hiding in our homes and, and, and because, you know, we're so corrupted by the world and all this stuff. And, and, and then, you know, you got the brave Catholics who are willing to, to go without the vaccine and go to, you know, take risks and go to mass and go out without masks and all that stuff. And then go straight and to heaven. Yeah. And then, yeah, and they'll be rewarded for it. Right. And it's a very powerful and dangerous narrative, but I find it, it's, it's extremely troubling when it's sort of twisting the official theology by taking, you know, what is supposed to be an exceptional maybe situation and then, and then twisting it into something that they're all going to embrace as the norm, like right. this heroic witness. Well, and two, two things that strike me about that. The first is when the Vatican uh, says like, yeah, vaccine shouldn't be mandatory, but if you're not going to get it, you should take extra precaution to not become a vector yourself. The, the same people in, in my social media world who are against the vaccine are against social distancing and face masks yeah. and everything else. So they're, they're not actually doing what the Vatican says, right? They're not saying I will take a heroic witness to life by, by not receiving this, this vaccine that I see as morally compromised, even if it might be licit uh, in some exceptional circumstance, uh, you know, I won't take it and I'll, I will make a personal sacrifice by, by doing extra things to keep other people safe in order to make a witness. No, no, you say I'm gonna I'm gonna do a heroic witness that also is really convenient for me. Like that's not how heroic yeah. witness works. Heroic witness is is a is a kind of martyrdom, right? It's it it should cost you something. And and so it's if if you're not doing what the Vatican says for people who who are doing this heroic witness and taking extra precautions, uh, but you're you're actively advocating against such precautions or even mocking people 
who who take such precautions, then you're not doing heroic witness. You're 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 counter witnessing. I mean, I mean that's that's very that's not that's not the way heroic witness works. And and I think the second thing I want to say about this is um, right now we're in this really awkward position, right? Every once in a while it goes through your head. You think like sinner that you know sinner that I am, sinners that we are. You think, gosh, you know, wouldn't be too bad if one of them got really sick and learned their lesson, you know. And then you think, well, obviously that's a terrible thing for me to think, and I don't believe that. But what should I think? What what I should think is I need to get vaccinated to protect the people who are antagonizing me on Facebook who won't protect themselves. Now, now this, right, we, we as a society are, it's incumbent upon us, as many of us as possible to get vaccinated to protect the people who won't get vaccinated and who are actively antagonizing us at at the at the time, right? So this it's this it's this hall of mirrors. It feels very surreal to think I need to that that part of my moral obligation right now is to protect the people who are. I mean, they're not all persecuting me. Some people just you know disagree, but some people say vicious things, right? And oh, make yeah. you know public calumny and and attacks and you know question the faith of anyone who who doesn't think the way they do including you know the pope and the pope emeritus i mean it's it's kind of surreal to be in that position morally and i think one of the things that the the cdf document um where it's being interpreted interpreted inaccurately um it it says that the vaccines are morally illicit and can be taken in good conscience all of the ones they said all of the ones that are currently in in production or, or being researched are morally illicit and then they then they bring in the the section about if for moral reasons like we're here to form consciences not to replace them if if your conscience tells you you can't take it then here's your obligation but what i'm finding is they're not only taking that exception as a loophole, but they they are then applying it to say that my position is actually the only moral position. And if you, you know, it's like they don't see that, no, the CDF says it's licit. Like you can't say that a, that a Catholic who does get vaccinated is not orthodox or is doing something right. immoral. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that I've found with, with um, you know, like a Morris Letizia, where they would say, well, and you know, you have certain dioceses where they implement policies that uh, do not allow any exceptions whatsoever, which I mean, if maybe if that's what the bishop thinks is the best pastoral response, okay, that's fine. But when, but then when they go and say like the bishops of Buenos Aires or the bishops of uh, Malta are, uh, are doing something wrong and sinful and gravely immoral by by actually following the document, right. you know, by, by saying what's permissible in the document. And I, I think that's, you know, that's one of the things. It's like if the church says that something is licit and somebody just goes along with it, I mean, it could be anything from communion in the hand, which the church says is licit, or it could be getting a vaccine but people who decide to opt for either the more morally stringent or strict option will still judge the person who does the other licit option. Right, right. Does that make sense? It, I mean, maybe you're a theologian, yeah. maybe you could explain it well, better than I did. But. Well, no, I, I, the point is a good one, right? I thought the communion in the hand is an interesting 
argument because because you try to have it both ways. You you want to say on the one hand both when it serves my side, I want to say both are licit. But but then when when the tables are turned, I say but mine's better, and it, yeah. right. And so it it depends on on sort of where you're situated, which argument you prefer. And I mean, one of the interesting things about the um, the argument that the the vaccines are are immoral is it, it became clear fairly early on in these debates that the, the level of um, sort of moral connection that at least the mRNA vaccines have with uh, the, the cell line HEK293 is the same connection as Tylenol or Tums. Yeah. And, and, and once, once that became clear and, and it, it wasn't disputed, I mean, once it was, once it was out there, everyone was like, Oh, that's kind of too bad. But, um, but, in my neck of the woods, anyways, um, the arguments against vaccines shifted away from being moral arguments, uh, and and started being. And I think you can even see it on LifeSite News. LifeSite News was trying to make the case that these were immoral, and and that just stopped being sustainable, even to LifeSite News readers who take Tylenol. Uh, and then it and then it became uh, something else, right? These vaccines are a massive experiment. They're going to lead to genocide. Um, there's, I, I was recently issued a summons. I, I'm going to be uh, brought, brought up for crimes against humanity uh, by the Nuremberg Protocols. Um, because, Good to know. Uh, which is, so after, after World War II at Nuremberg, one of the things that happened were protocols, uh, and forgive me if I don't get the wording exactly right on this because I'm, I'm riffing up from memory, but protocols uh, to do with um, ex experimentation, medical experimentation on human subjects, right? And um, the suggestion is that uh, all of the testing that happened before the vaccine rollout was illegitimate because it was rushed or whatever. And so what's currently happening is a massive um, human experiment that all these people have been duped into unwittingly. And one of the things you can't do is dupe people unwittingly into <laughs> medical experiments. And so if you, as a theologian for an archdiocese, um, like gave permission or, or even encouraged people to get vaccinated, uh, you're now implicated in a crime against humanity and lawyers are standing by. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> it was a head spinning sort of email uh, to, to receive. But yeah. my point in telling the story is, is the target shifted, right? It used to yeah. be the vaccines are immoral. And now it's just, it's anything you can find. It's that vaccines are going to cause infertility. So, you know, Mr. Archbishop, you can't tell people it's okay to get this. How are you going to feel in 20 years when none of the Catholic families can have children because you let them get these vaccines, right? Um, or it's the Nuremberg thing. Right? I, like it's, it's one thing after another, after another. On, on that topic of the, the shifting narrative, I do have, have something to add. First, though, I just want to mention, because, you know, I like to fact check when I say something. So I, I I said that the USCCB had said that, you know, it's morally permissible to take the vaccine, but uh, it's not uh, mandatory, right? And it was actually Archbishop Nauman who had mentioned this thing about heroic witness, and I think it was brought up in an EWTN interview. So I think um, that's where I want I just wanted to make clear in case anyone was wondering that um, I don't think it wasn't that the USCCB were calling for people to make a heroic witness, but at the same time, people hear stuff like that and then they, they, you know, catch on to it. And, uh, right. and that becomes their sort of loophole and their way of, you know, 
getting fueling their own narrative. Um, on, on the on that issue though of the the shifting narrative, I've noticed a really kind of fascinating shift towards. Um, uh, talk about these spike proteins. I don't know if you heard about this. That so the you know the coronavirus itself causes these spike proteins. I, I don't really I don't know the science behind it. I'm I, you know I'm just reading stuff online. Um, and now when you take a vaccine, um, it also creates these um, spike proteins in smaller amounts. And um, the idea is that people who get vaccinated might shed these spike proteins um, and when the spike proteins kind of reach other people, it can cause infertility, it can cause, um, you know, miscarriages and things like that. So, and so the idea is now that not only are people who get vaccinated, you know, like dupes of the new world order and, and all that kind of stuff. Now they're actually harmful to other people. Right. So, right. you know, well, people are saying, <laughs> you know, we got to like round up the vaccinated and like keep them away from the general population sort of thing. It's crazy. <laughs> the stunning thing about this, right. So, so that, yeah, the, the spike protein is what the virus uses to get into your cells. And so the, the, the vaccine, uh, the MRNA vaccines tell, teach your body well to, to make just that spike protein so it can, your T cells and whatever else, I'm not going to get it all right. You can recognize it and respond. But here's, here's the amazing thing about that. People tell me there's no reason to be afraid of the, the virus. It's not dangerous. If you're, if you're sick or dying from it, it's probably because your vitamin D was low. Um, and, and in any case, uh, you can treat it with ivermectin, like no problem. Everyone would be fine. If we weren't keeping the treatments away from the people, nobody would be dying. So, so they say on the one hand, there's no reason to be afraid of the virus um, because like just take some vitamin D and if you get, you know, if you didn't have enough vitamin D before, well, take some ivermectin if you get sick and no worries, right? They're terrified of minute amounts of a spike protein, which is just part of the virus, uh, right? How, how, how am I safe from the virus if I have vitamin D, but I'm not safe from tiny fractions of synthetic virus, like it's 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 first of all the shedding thing has been thoroughly debunked i mean one of the interesting things about mrna that is is it breaks down so fast it leaves nothing but a memory i mean it, it leaves a chemical memory that your immune system knows to recognize spike proteins similar spike proteins in the future but there's but it's just it's gone that's why it needs to be refrigerated so carefully because it's so unstable it just breaks down so it's 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 an interesting you know medical advance in that way uh, because it leaves almost nothing behind, but but they're afraid of that. Where, where's your ivermectin? Can't that save you from the tiny little bits if it can protect you from a virus that's killed three and a half million people? It's it's very bizarre. It's it's so selective. That's what's characteristic of of the conspiratorial mind is the selective application. Right, the same principle. You don't apply it in the same way in an in an analogous case if it doesn't fit your narrative, right? And that it's one of the hallmarks of conspiratorial thinking is, is that selective application bit. Well, and I don't want to jump in here with my own conspiracy theory, but I, I what you guys are both talking about here is kind of alluding to, to something that occurred to me very early on. And I think it was when, um, I think uh, Bishop Strickland and a priest named Father Michael Copenhagen, I think who's in upstate New York, he's an Eastern Rite Catholic priest, but both of them have been very outspoken against vaccines, but they, they appeared at some virtual online uh, conference, both of them, I think, speaking about 
um, you know, this moral cooperation with abortion issue. But the lineup of speakers, you know, was everybody from RFK Jr. to uh, Wakefield, the the vaccine autism link doctor from England. I mean, it was this list of like 20 people objecting all each of them with their own set of objections to vaccines. And, and, you know, I think for yuppie parents, it was, you know, the, the, there's that autism appeal. And then for, um, you know, for, for those who are a little bit more crunchy hippie types, it's about putting foreign substances into your child's body. And for Catholics, it's that tie to uh, the tie to abortion. And I think when that argument fell apart because of, I mean, the tie to Tums and Tylenol and I, and even diet Pepsi for a while, I think was using, um, was using the cell line in their, in their flavor testing. Um, it, it seems that like, if I was to say there's a conspiracy behind it, it's the anti-vax movement, which I don't even know what motivates that. Like if it's just, if it's just something that's caught on or just this conspiracy mindset, but it's like to them, any argument that convinces one less person to get vaccinated for whatever is a valid argument to them. And yeah, that, that's a that's a really interesting thing, Mike, because you're getting these really strange bedfellows, like um, in the general anti-vax world now. Like you have like all the Catholics, and then you have um, like yeah, the 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 sort of natural healing type people, the the, the and and you know, natural living sort of influencers. And, and some of them are, they're, they're similar in, in the sense that, you know, some of them are like homeschoolers, like a lot of Catholics are um, similar, you know, mentalities in some ways um, coming together, but with very different fundamental beliefs um, or you're getting the, the anti-China people. And, uh, and, and so they're all coming together behind this, 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 anti-COVID front, basically. Um, but I think, you know, people who are getting involved in this have to watch out, like you're getting further and further into uh, getting mixed up with some strange, strange people um, and compromising in, in your faith and your, um, you know, critical thinking in so many ways. And the, the algorithm feeds this. I mean, I was doing research for this show on lab leaks and YouTube started showing me David Icke. I mean, wow. like this guy literally believes that we're controlled by like transdimensional lizard people, right? I mean, like. Well, that that's true, though, right? I thought. Oh, well, okay. Let's save for another show, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, the point once it's once you're into any argument is a good argument territory, um, like it's 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 not just a rabbit hole. It's like a chasm. Like it's it's really dangerous, right? Well, I, I was I was completely shocked. I'm still shocked um, that. I saw Naomi Wolf, the, the feminist, um, on Steve Bannon's show, uh, ranting about you know COVID and stuff like that. So, like, it just it, it's it's incredible that you would have these two people like forging an alliance. But there we are, and uh, she was just banned from Twitter anyway for spreading uh, COVID misinformation. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's Wait, so uh, it's, David it's wild. back on YouTube now. I thought he was banned from there. Maybe his channel, I, his, maybe I, yeah, his channel, yeah, his channel, but it was videos of him, anyways. Yeah, yeah. look, one of the things we 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 were planning to talk about. I, I mean, I was curious in in a kind of analogy. You know, I mentioned earlier that that um, 
if you're dying now in Saskatchewan of COVID, you're, you're dying of misinformation, right? And, I, and, it, and it struck me when that happened. I, you know, I remember people coming out of the rabbit hole after the presidential inauguration, right? So QAnon said like, okay, this will never happen. And then it happened. And then step, you know, step B would never happen. Trump was going to stop it, whatever. And like the inauguration was kind of the final stop for a lot of these people, right? Like that was going to be, what is it called? The thunder clapper? I mean, what the QAnon had this word for the storm was going to break. The storm. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and it was, you know, and everyone was going to get arrested and all this stuff. And Trump would be, you know, installed for another four years and whatever else. And this got stretched on, you know, until the inauguration happened and none of that took place. And then people started saying, whoa, like, how did I get to this stage of believing this stuff? And I wondered to myself, when we get to the stage where the only people dying from COVID are anti-vaxxers, does, does that same things start happening. And I think I've, I, I don't think it happens in exactly the same way. Cause one of the things about COVID is it's, it's built itself. The conspiracies around the vaccines have built a safety net, which is, well, it might not happen. It might not happen um, for uh, 15 years, right? We won't know about all the, all the impacts uh, for 15 years. And so th they've built in this, this safety net, but um but what I started to see as more and more people have gotten vaccinated and as people in your circles get vaccinated without ill effects is the soft core of the anti-vax, right? And like, and there's a spectrum. There's like, oh, I'm just a hesitant person in general. So I don't rush into these things to like, you know, I, I, I have these suspicions about these people, but uh, I'm just going to wait and see or whatever else to the like, I'm pretty sure something nefarious is up here, but also people are dying. I mean, there's this range, but it, I've seen in my own circles, this kind of crumbling of the soft core and, and to, to getting vaccinated. And it's really only the, the hardest core that's, I mean, it's not the only thing left now, but my suspicion is that's what it's going to boil down to is it's going to be that like the hardest core will be left sort of like QAnon, right? Um, and because they will be forced into ever wilder um, sort of claims to, to substantiate what they've been holding to that point. I, I like, how does that strike you that analogy or, or, or the, or is that what you're seeing in your circles or, or what? I, two Definitely. things are coming. So, well, I mean, for me, two things are, are coming to mind when I look at uh, Pope Frank, the, you know, sort of the decline against, Pope Francis, which is kind of a, a a parallel to what we saw maybe during the Trump administration and as this QAnon and, and COVID stuff started happening. But it was, you know, very early on, it was Pope Francis was concerning, right? He was he was troubling, he was confusing. Then Amoris Letizia came out and he, you know, all of a sudden it was like he was alluding to doctrinal error. Then the dubia came out and he was um a heretic all of a sudden and then vegano came out and he was like you know the pinnacle of this corrupt you know devious you know diabolical thing and and one thing that like david and i have noticed and, and we did a podcast a while back with um nathan tarowski one of our contributors and it was like where is the bottom of this you know i mean it, and and i don't know i mean and the thing is it's like yeah i think a lot of people are dropping off but like their dropping off point is pretty stable like they might think, you know, 
okay, well, this microchips implants and the vaccine thing, that that might be a little bit extreme, but, uh, you know, that Cardinal Burke is pushing, but uh, Pope Francis is still a heretic. It's like they reach their threshold and they let other people keep going without, you know, and they're, oh, that, you know, okay, maybe we don't like the, the current Pope, but Vatican II, that mostly valid, you know? I mean, and so I feel like with the with the COVID stuff, I think it's sort of like, okay, well, that guy is really crazy, but I mean, you know, it's still COVID, the vaccine is still bad. You know, I, I don't know. To me, I'm not seeing a huge, yeah, not everyone is going fully down into the rabbit hole, but I'm also getting a sense that not everyone, that people aren't really bouncing back from it. I'm not witnessing it. Are you, David, witnessing people... <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I still see a lot of anti-vax uh, sentiment out there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that as we move along, it's going to be the hardcore that's um, remaining because eventually people do have to decide, like, am I going to am I going to say, you know, hey, I was mistaken about this. I got to pull back. I got to like get back into the real world. Um, or are they just going to double down, keep doubling down um, to the very end? And there are always going to be some who keep doubling down to the very end. They're going to, um, even if they all get kicked off the big social media outlets, they're going to end up on Telegram or, you know, Parler or whatever, the, whatever you know, opens up for them. Um, they're going to create. And what what's worse is that they're, with these people, because they're going off onto these um, more isolated social media outlets, echo it's chamber. even more of an echo chamber. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the best thing for freeing yourself from conspiracy theory or just having a critical outlook in general is to be exposed to a lot of different viewpoints. That's, that's like one of the key things you got to be able to, um, you got to be able to question your own thinking a little bit, um, every now and then in order to, um, in order to actually see, see clearly. And unfortunately those people um, are not going to get that. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, you know, we also got to think there's, there are probably a lot of people, I'll, I'd expect there are people who are online talking about how bad the vaccines are. And in real life, they, they got the vaccine, you know, like there's people who can be sort of like live a double life like that. Um, well, I get the sense that half the people who are like, you know, traditionalist trolls on Twitter either don't go to mass or have never been to a Latin mass in their life. I don't know. Like the, the, like, I, I don't know. It's like, what is your experience with real people? Cause you're, what you're talking about is not, you know, human to me, but here's another, um, a, an example from history. And I'm probably the least qualified of the three of us to talk. I'm, I'm suspecting to talk about it, but I think it was 1833 and 1844 in New York state, the great disappointment. I think the guy's name was William Miller. He was a preacher who just like we had uh, Harold Camping in 2012 or whatever, calculate the, the end of the world. Like the world's only going to last for 10,000 years. And this is, you know, this date in 1843. So that, you know, they sell all their possessions and his followers and he, they would go up on the mountain in the white robes and uh, wait for the end of the world, the rapture to pull them up. And uh, it didn't happen. You know, it, that's the, you know, the end of that. But Went back down, did some calculations. Oh, we were off by a day. Okay, well, let's go back up the mountain tomorrow. And then uh, and they went up, and, and then they were all raptured in the world. No, it didn't happen. So they went back down the mountain, recalculated it off by a, a year and a day, it turned out, from his original calculation. 1844, they all went back up the mountain. 
this time really hoping that they'd be raptured because, you know, they had been laughed at for an entire year. And uh, I don't think that there was a fourth time, but one of the things that resulted was a lot of denominations uh, are linked to that. I believe like Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses and a lot of those, um, you know, Northeast, like something about mid uh, mid 19th century in New York state was big for starting interesting religious traditions. I think the even the shakers may have come. I, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, that was the, uh, more about that it. was the, the time of the, I think it's the, the second great awakening. There were the, these two, maybe, I mean, even the Mormons kind of came out of yeah. the same area around, you know, a few decades yeah. away from that. But it, I, I mean, the thing is, it's like, but those people who went up the mountain, yeah, they, they ate some crow, about that particular incident, but they didn't actually change their mindset. They just found other people to follow and other things to do. So maybe no. David Icke will be the next, you know, the, the no, no. <laughs> but it, in answer to that question, I got to say, um, so we're looking at what happens when, you know, these things are predicted, they don't come true and people have to deal with it's cognitive dissonance, right? Like you have to deal with this cognitive dissonance and resolve it somehow. Um, now, and again, I'm shifting the topic a little because we, we, we have 15 I minutes left and I want to get to it. I know where you're going. Okay, yes. What do we do with when, when people, like let's say people who are trying to think critically and trying to avoid getting sucked into this conspiracy world, what, what happens when, uh, oh, the, these guys actually get something right? So, right. And, and that's what we were talking about at the beginning, this idea of the lab leak theory. Brett, Brett, do you have any, can you add a little about the, the, the lab leak theory um, and what this kind of means? Right, yeah, I mean, so for people who don't know, it's, is it like, where did, you know, the virus come from? Was it zoonotic, right? Did it come directly from an animal population or did it come through a lab? And both those possibilities have been available from the beginning. I mean, that was, those were the two options. Uh, there's a major um, lab in Wuhan uh, that does this kind of research. So, you know, it's not crazy to think that that's one of the possibilities, right? Um, but most of the narrative uh, said zoonotic, right? And now just in the last few weeks, uh, it's looking like the lab leak hypothesis is more and more plausible, maybe probable, who, who knows, we don't know, but it's, it's, it's a legit part of the discussion, right? And so what this looks like, if, if, you're a, if you're thinking conspiratorially about a whole bunch of things related to COVID, one of the parts of the puzzle was the lab leak theory. And it, it, it fits a nice conspiracist framework because it's got nefarious actors um, and, you know, bad governments and, and lying scientists and lying media and, and all that kind of stuff, Right. Um, and so it, it, it fit nicely in there. And so it, it was is immediately grasped upon. Um, now, I want to say uh, from the beginning, I, I watched the lab leak theory and I thought to myself, I mean, I didn't think it was the most likely mo because the experts didn't think it was the most likely. And I hadn't seen evidence, you know, otherwise. But it but it there there was a kind of plausibility. But then there were two there's there were two different kinds of lab leak theories. There was like hey, uh, there's a lab in Wuhan and they do certain kind of work there, particularly what's called gain of function research, where, where you give uh, viruses capacities in order to study them so you'll be better prepared for a pandemic. 
Well, they do that work at that lab, right? Okay, um, that's that's a plausible thing. Then you could you could go the other way and you could say like um, it was it was like a a bioweapon developed by China and released to destroy the world and and you know upstage all the economies and whatever else like right it you could make plausible cases not definitive arguments we don't have those yet right you can make plausible cases or you can make wild speculations and those are not the same they're not of the same epistemological value and so if what you were involved in was wild speculation you were not just vindicated i'm sorry that's if what you made were plausible hypotheses that uh, that awaited evidence uh, and now you've got some more evidence in favor of your hypothesis. Hey, good for you, right? Like that's that's the way this should work. Um, but but it, the the deeper point is what makes a conspiracy theory a conspiracy theory is not simply the content; it's the form of the argumentation, right? Um, it, it, this it gets really weird. There we said two weeks ago there are there are actual conspiracy theories. Uh, or sorry. There are actually, what I mean to say is there are actual conspiracies in the world. And every single person, conspiracy theorist or not, every single person knows that if there was a lab leak in China, the government of China will conspire to cover it up. Like there's nobody who doesn't think that, right? Nobody thinks that China wouldn't try to keep the lid on this, if it were, right? So um, everyone thinks China is likely to conspire if this is the case. Does that make everyone a conspiracy theorist? Not in the way we typically use the term, right? That would be that would be just changing the meaning of the word in the way we usually use it. And so I think it's important to recognize that you know, like the analogy is like, okay, I'm in grade 10 math class and I got a question right. And, and then I looked and I had actually made two different mistakes that canceled each other out. Now, should the should the teacher commend me because I got the answer right? Or should they say, actually, your process is wrong. You you were right by luck this time. But if you keep applying this process, it's not going to work out well. And you're not going to get to truth regularly by doing it, right? And so whenever something like this happens, the question is, what what worked here? Was it Was it wild speculation without evidence that worked? Or was it making a plausible case that worked? Uh, and, and and we and the worst thing that can happen is we say all other wild speculation is now on the table because some wild speculation got lucky, right? Instead, we should say like no. And 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 here's here's where it ends, right? If we end up finding out that the lab leak theory is the either maybe we can prove that it's the case or at least it becomes the most probable situation. How did we find that out? not by the wild speculation, only by the careful reasoning of the experts. Not, I mean, that, not they, the they, people they, at their keyboards in their basements with their tinfoil hats. The, they weren't the, the ones who figured irony, that out. Yeah, the deep <laughs> irony is you don't trust the media. And now, now the mainstream media says that this is plausible. And now you say, even the mainstream media says it's plausible. Wait a minute. Doesn't that mean I shouldn't believe it now? If it, you know, it's this selective application process again, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this this comes up a lot for me. You know, when I'm looking at what's going on in social media, like another example is the um, uh, we're talking about China here. Um, there's a lot. There was a, there's 
there's been a lot of anti-Chinese, um, you know, propaganda, I guess, being produced these days. A lot of it comes out of um, Steve Bannon's radio show, uh, Pandemic War Room, which is, um, he, he's he's working with this uh, Chinese expat billionaire who, who wants to take down the CCCP. Um, and so that's that's their mission. Um, now, now, it's not that I'm a fan, a big fan of China. I think there's incredible number of things to be concerned about when it comes to China, including um, stuff about the the Uyghurs that we you know we've heard about. I don't know if you know about this, but um, that this you know ethnic group is is sort of being um, uh, they're trying to kind of you know rid them of their sort of ethnic roots within China and and, and replace them with uh, sort of adherence to you know, Chinese, uh, communist ideology. Um, now there's a lot of truth in that. It seems anyway, like the, the information that's coming out, but it's so hard sometimes when you're trying to disentangle the real truth that's coming out about the, the Uyghur situation from the kind of like spewing of anything that they can find <laughs> that makes the, the Chinese look bad that you get from these people like Steve Bannon. Um, it's in, you know, back, um, I found a, an article, um, back from, uh, September 2020, um, a Vox uh, article, and I'll, I'll put it in the chat after, after I'm done talking about it, but it was talking about how Steve Bannon and this this guy, Miles uh, Guo, who, who's the, the billionaire who's helping him, um, they were promoting this, this new study that came out that said that um, the coronavirus was created in a, a Chinese lab. Um, now, the the thing to, re, to to notice here is that they actually didn't the study didn't actually say that it was just created in a Chinese lab, but also that it was a it was intentionally released, or at least that's the the theory of the study's lead author that this was intentionally released into the world. Um, now, people at the time, scientists at the time, looked at the study, said it's completely flawed. It's not based on you know any real argumentation, so it was rejected. But the the Vox reporter said that uh, you know the people that they were um, uh, talking to the experts that they were talking to did not, you know, um, discount the idea that um, that the the virus had come from uh, a lab. It's just they didn't think that this paper um, proved that in any way. And also, it was tied to other, um, you know, even bigger accusations that require even further proof, like the idea that you know this may have been some kind of bioweapon. So, um, it's. Um, it's very difficult to um, you can, you can look at that and say, Oh, well, this person was, was right. But I mean, were they right? Were they just throwing stuff out seeing what stuck? Um, and, you know, or if they were, they may have been partially right, but you know, you can, you have to disentangle these things. And always when you make any claim about a big claim like this, like that, um, that this was produced in a lab in China or that it was like a bioweapon, um, you, these are extraordinary claims that require extraordinary evidence, right? So you you can't you can't base these on just rumors or you know weak observations and, and things like that. You have to actually base it on a, a really sound argument, like you've been talking about, because um, a lot rides on these things, right? And, and the, I mean the gain of function argument, right? They're doing that research there. So like the gain of function argument is like, how did we get this particular kind of virus is a plausible argument. And it works with data we already know from what actually happens in this lab at Wuhan. Um, something like intentionally released uh, uh, bioweapon um, 
is is like it's not an impossible thing to happen in the world, right? It's a thing that could theoretically happen, but it but to to presume that that's like that's the most basic explanation for something where we already have like pretty plausible like this is Occam's razor, right? Like yeah. like a lab leak, uh, an an innocent lab leak uh, from a place that's doing this kind of research. Um, is is your primary um, hypothesis if you're a lab leak hypothesis, right? The released bioweapon, it's attractive because it's sensational and it's something they would want to keep down and and whatever else. But but what kind of evidence would it require? And that's a question to ask always: is like what would have to be true for that to be true? Right. What other things would need to be true? And how would I know those other things are true? Whereas I already have a pretty plausible set of conditions for uh, a, what, what I'm calling an innocent lab leak, right? So like differentiating uh, between these various hypotheses, it's not just, oh, lab leak is true, therefore everything is true. Like well, it, you got to do that sifting. And not only that, I mean, okay, whatever the origin of the virus, it got out. Right. And and if you're and all the other conspiracy theories, the anti-masking, the anti-vaxxing, I mean, was Pfizer in on it? Was Moderna, was AstraZeneca in on it? Or were they just trying to address this virus that had come out and trying to find a way to prevent it? I mean, right. that's it has it doesn't tie into the vaccine development unless you've got like some huge, just totally conspiratorial mindset. I mean, right. the, that would have to mean or that the researchers. And, oh, yeah. And I mean, the researchers in the U.S. and Canada and Europe and India, like, I mean, they were trying to address the virus. They weren't, I, I mean, they didn't know where it came from. They they were drug developers. They were vaccine developers. And so, okay, well, here's our problem. This is how we fix it. It, had, it doesn't matter whether it came from a bat or whether it was released maliciously onto the world by the Chinese government. It's, it's still a virus. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it does matter for other, right? I mean, one thing I want to grant to, it's a warning that David gave at the beginning, right? We don't want to reject things out of hand because we're asking other people not to reject things yeah. out of hand, right? If it suits the narrative, uh, then I accept it. If it doesn't suit the narrative, I reject it. We're saying, you know, conspiracy theorists yeah. shouldn't do that and neither should we. And one of the things uh, that we need to be cognizant of is... Um, it was easy to dismiss the lab leak theory, even if it was plausible, it was easy to dismiss it because of the boy who cried wolf, right? And and there, there's, there's two parties at fault in the boy who cried wolf story, actually. We think it's typically just the boy who cried wolf because he made a mistake, right? I mean, he, he lied and then people didn't believe him. That's true and he shouldn't have lied. And so the, right, the conspiracy theorist has set themselves up to not be believed by engaging in, in bad public reasoning, right? On the other hand, there actually was a wolf uh, the third time around with that boy. And so um, it's incumbent upon uh, everyone else to not dismiss everything because a conspiracy theorist would like it. And that was the temptation with the lab leaks. Even though there was a plausible hypothesis, it was tempting and social media um, platforms made this mistake, right? They didn't differentiate necessarily between different lab leak hypotheses. They said lab leaks are for conspiracy theorists. And so some people were shut down. And what that does, that doubles, that, that 
what's what's the word I want? That that puts the conspiracy theorist into that position of doubling down, right? Like it's, it's from a scriptural point of view, you'd call that hardening the heart, right? When you when you dismiss someone at, uh, when they shouldn't have been dismissed with the term conspiracy theorist, then your capacity to 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 think through conspiracy theory thinking with them is diminished. And so one of the one of the mistakes that was made here was the too easy dismissal um, by by not making the distinction that we've tried to highlight here, which is it's not just the content of the theory, it's the, it's the form of argument. And and that applies whether you're promoting it or dismissing it, right? Otherwise you become the mirror image of your of your enemy, you know. Uh, so, so I agree with you, Mike, 100%. It doesn't matter for vaccine developers, but it does matter for public discourse on, on this level, I oh, think. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that's an important. And we have to be careful not to treasure certain narratives too, um, <laughs> too much, right? Um, and, and like you said, this actually applies to the conspiracy theorists too. Like with this um, paper that came out last year in September that um, said it, that the this may have been the, the COVID may have been created, or not COVID, but the coronavirus may have been created in a lab. Um, maybe if they had presented it, um, just that itself, it may have had more um, uh, impact than if the lead author hadn't gone on Tucker Carlson, apparently, and then said it was intentionally released. So now you're you're, you're adding this narrative to it. Um, and But we have to watch out for the same thing, because we, we want to have this narrative where, I mean, we wouldn't, we don't want in some ways, we don't want the. Uh, it would be nice if there if this was a naturally occurring virus, because then no one's really at fault here, right? Um, you know, this is not to the a, same degree. Yeah, not to the same degree. This is something that's just really unfortunate that 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 happened to the world. Um, if it was a lab leak, then there's actual maybe geopolitical consequences that come out of this. Um, and then, of course, if it was like an actual like bioweapon, right, then there's huge geopolitical consequences. But um, we we have to be careful not to, like, I, I want it to be a naturally occurring thing because we don't have to go through all this. But, um, and we don't need to face, like, say, the anti-Chinese racism, which you get, um, uh, like, we, we have a, I don't know if you get it out um, in Regina, but there's a the newspaper called the Epic Times that um, gets published and distributed sometimes for free to people's uh, mailboxes, and it's all like stuff about coronavirus and uh, how China's responsible and, and and stuff like that. And it's you know it seems to be generating some real anti-Chinese sentiment, which could get out of control. And I mean, I, I'd like that to be not true. If it is true, if it turns out to be true, then okay, we have to modify modify our narrative and try to think this through again in a way that doesn't put the blame on all Chinese people. And, you know, we got to actually think it through, figure out where the blame really resides. Um, so I guess the, the overall lesson is we have to be careful um, and cautious and patient as we go along. Right. Um, and there's so many bad actors out there who are trying to push things one way or the other. We have to be just ex extremely prudent in the way we, we go right. about investigating this. And and suspicious of our like suspicious of our own temptations, right? We're tempted, you know. The lab leak theory, like I, you can you can check my public statements. I never said anything against it. I never called it a conspiracy theory or, or whatever else, right? So I can stand on that. But I will admit, I there was I did react to it dismissively once when it was presented in a list of other conspiracies by Patrick Coffin, 
And he had listed a bunch of other conspiracies and he listed this and I just sort of, well, of course that's what he would say. Right. And I like, I was, I was not completely wrong, but there was a mistake I made in there because I like, if I was being really honest, I could have said like, not all those things are exactly the same. Right. But it was easy for me to see the person saying the nonsense and be dismissive. And so it's important to like, to, to check ourselves because we can get committed emotionally to a narrative and that's the enemy of our rational engagement. Right. So can, can, we're running out of time. Can I finish by telling a story? Yes, please. absolutely. Please. Yes. That'd be great. So I was on two weeks ago. I said that my wife and I had been vaccinated and our boys were going to get vaccinated right away. We have 14 and 12 year old boys. So then we, we heard from some people who were concerned. They shouldn't get the boys vaccinated. Have you heard uh, that there's, uh, there's some, you know, teenagers who are getting vaccine are experiencing heart problems. So you shouldn't get them vaccinated. Okay. So I look into the, the heart problem. Myocarditis is being reported uh, among some uh, teens who've, who've received the vaccine. We don't yet know if that's at a higher rate than teens get it normally. Uh, so, so that work still has to be done. Um, but whether or not there's any connection with the vaccine, um, what we do know is that it's uh, extremely rare and, and in fact, mild. People aren't dying from it. Um, myocarditis is an inflammation of a heart muscle. It happens um, often in, in human living. Most people who get it never even know they got it. Don't go to a doctor. Don't get diagnosed. Um, and so, I mean, we did the research, myocarditis in, in teens. And, um, oh, and here's the real kicker. It's more likely to be caused and more severely so by COVID than by a vaccine, right? So adding all that together, we said, well, we'll still get the boys vaccinated, uh, you know? So we're, we're out at, at a friend's farm last night, outdoors, not yet indoors, uh, but we're, we're playing outside and it's a hot day here in Saskatchewan. And my 12 year old Oscar, he's running hard all day and there's water fights and they're running in the bales and Oscar has asthma, so like running on the farm is is you know a little risky, and it's dusty and whatever. So, and and then we eat a bunch of ice cream and you know all kinds of things that make you feel good in your body, right? So we get home. It's ten o'clock at night, and Oscar's like, "Dad, I think my heart like it hurts a little. Like when I breathe, like really when I take a really deep breath, I feel something here that's it's not comfortable. Like I'm not sure what what should we do." And I said. You know, maybe just try to rest and, and breathe and drink something cold and see if it feels better, whatever, whatever. Anyways, uh, yeah, so you got this 12-year-old who's who has an experience of something, who knows what, it, that feels like it's near his heart. Now, here's the end of the story. Oscar's not vaccinated yet because we haven't been able to coordinate things with our pharmacy. Uh, the day we called, they were out of supply and we, you know, we got busy and we had to check back in. Now, here's, here's why do I tell the story? Because if you are looking for the vaccines to be a problem, then any adverse health impact had by anyone who is vaccinated is now attributable to the vaccine. And Mike, you, you talked about this last week in the story with, with your sister, right? Uh, Oscar didn't have the vaccine, but if he did have the vaccine, people would be 100% certain that any little feeling he had in his chest was attributed attributable to the vaccine. Uh, I had a, a relative who had a stroke within a few weeks of her being eligible for the vaccine by her age. She wasn't vaccinated when she had the stroke. But if she had been, 
100% guaranteed the people around her who had been telling her not to get a vaccine would tell her, that, would tell everyone that the vaccine caused her stroke. Now, she's, she didn't die from the stroke, so don't panic or whatever. But, but I mean, this is the kind of thing. And this is what happened with your sister. And here's the flip side of it that I just became aware of. Now let's imagine that your, your parent uh, uh, has an adverse health effect. Uh, maybe they die after receiving the vaccine. And you're convinced 100% that their death is attributable to the vaccine because of what you read on the internet. Everything is now attributable to the vaccine. What does that do to your capacity to mourn well? Your life is now a battle with the media, with the health establishment, with, right? Like all of your time and energy and anxiety is going to go into fighting for justice for your, your deceased parent. Um, when there is, the chances are slim to none that the vaccine was responsible. So on the one hand, there's people experiencing what you experienced, Mike, which is awful enough. This kind of terrible, you know, well of families in mourning, people are trying to attribute, you know, a heart condition that was what, 20 or 30 years 40, in the making, whole life, 40 years, over right? 40 years. Yeah. To, to the vaccine. But the flip side is when those people's own loved ones die, what, oh, yeah. what, are, what's what, you know? And so, I mean, the basic story is all other causes of adverse health effects are now gone. There's no other reason that anyone gets sick. If you are vaccinated, it is the cause of whatever happens next. If you're 70 years old and most of your social circle are people in their 60s and 70s, adverse health uh, impacts happen like weekly yeah. <laughs> in your circle, right? Um, and so one of the reasons this thing is going to hang on for a while is because it's it's been built to be confirmed by all these incidences and we just we need to watch for that because even those of us who are furthest away from like trying to not to be conspiracy theorists i'll tell you if my if i had gotten oscar's vaccine the week before and then his heart was hurting i'd sure wonder i'd sure wonder you know and like we just i i throw it out there in case it helps anyone Right, like if that's your family and you're having to deal with that, like the data to find is, does this happen with more frequency than it was happening in the general population? That's the key question. Because the yeah. anecdotal yeah. stuff is such, um, what's the word I want? It's an optical illusion. You know, it also points to the the idea here that, you know, we're not doing this, you know, talking about this stuff in order to like make fun of people who believe in in, in this or, or to you know to mock anyone because we know that people can get sucked into this stuff and it, um even really well-meaning people right um and so you know part of the reason that we're talking about this is to help people pull out of it um i mean <laughs> well i mean that's the whole premise behind where peter is really yeah yeah i mean yeah. It's, i mean people were uh, buying into these crazy conspiracies about pope francis or about Catholic doctrine, really. I mean, they're having these these faith crises that they aren't even willing to admit because they've bought into these false narratives um, that from a Catholic standpoint are generally impossible. And they're people we know and they're people we love and we're all Catholics and we know that this is a real phenomenon that goes on in our circles. And I hate to say it, but it's like a lot of our leaders didn't step up, yeah. didn't become the adults in the room, didn't try to nip some of these things in the bud or if they, or if they did, you know, they, they, they weren't heard. So, I mean, that's what we're, or, or didn't know how, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. like 
navigating social media, and I think social media is such a huge factor here, is tricky. And I've learned a lot in a couple years reading about this stuff and reading about conspiracy theories. You know, most of our bishops can't be experts in social media. Oh, yeah. Well, Even I mean, what I... From a generational point of view, right? Like... Yeah. Well, it's, I had a, a flippant line in my, uh, I don't know if you read the article I published a couple of days ago, but um, that the, you know, the average U.S. bishop social uh, communication strategy with their flock is uh, their weekly column in the diocesan paper and uh, in a press release every once in a while. And the diocesan paper is probably out of print and online only. And It, it points to the larger question, which is like, um, from where we sit and what we see, determines so much of how we think about things. And that's true whether it's an anecdote about health or whether it's the social media feed that the algorithm feeds us because what we've taught it about ourselves or whatever it is. And um, it's really important whether it's it's anecdotes versus bigger data in medicine or whether it's my feed versus the broader world of information to step back out of my little bubble Right. I mean, the, the great irony of, of social media, which was supposed to connect us, is that it siloed us, you know, and, and the bubbles are so hard. And, and all of us, all of us are in danger of um, misreading the situation because our bubble only presents us with certain angles. Right. And so uh, that that applies in, a, in, a, in a, at a few different layers here. And and just to invite people to to figure out ways to zoom out. From, from the thing that they've zoomed in on. I think the biggest one is, is actually spending time with people instead of on our screens. And that's been really hard in COVID. So as the restrictions lift, reconnect with people. If there's someone you've had a breakdown with on social media over this time, go for a beer with them, um, with family, right? I mean, we've got, you know, I know your story, Mike, uh, my story. Um, it's hard to talk with family about certain things on social media, talk, talk with them about other things. Like don't, don't lose that connection. Right. Like um, send a nice note to someone you disagree with about vaccines, about the blue jade. I like anything, you know, pick something human to connect with. I I just, you know, I really, just to end it off there, I really like that idea that, you know, we should take some time to zoom out because we spend a lot of time, you know, social media helps us zoom in, zoom in really tight on certain subjects and certain controversies, take some time to zoom out and uh, look at the rest of the world and, uh, you know, go outside, talk to people. It's, uh, it can do wonders. Well, we're way over time. All right. Two, two yeah. quick things. Two, two things. Okay. Uh, first thing is if you like uh, where Peter is and the critical Catholic and, uh, and where Peter is live in the podcast, uh, consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, click uh, underneath any of our articles or on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com, and there's a link to our Patreon page. Um, and then finally, the um, uh, season finale of Where Peter Is Live is this Thursday, um, taking a break, you know, just because it's summer and stuff. Um, we had Jeannie Gaffigan, our big celebrity guest on Thursday, so um, look for that. Uh, it's on YouTube now, and I'm going to upload the video one probably later tonight, or I mean the audio one for to wherever you listen to podcasts. So um, anyway, until next time, uh, God bless and take care.